Ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome back to FNI Rap Chat with Paul Webster and Mr. Paul Butler Lennox. Nice, yeah. Nice, yeah. nice intro. I did a bit of the voiceover back in the day, you know. Uh, so yeah, listen, thanks. He's a always working. He's always uh, plugging. Well, you know, you never know. Someone might give me a job out of this. Uh, I'm an actor, by the way. So yeah, um, yeah. Listen, uh, thanks for listening in. Today we're very lucky. We have um, a really, really fantastic um, uh, doc, predominantly doc uh, filmmaker, documentary and drama. Yeah, um, Mia Malarkey. Um, she's. Really do she's she's doing a lot these days. She's had a lot of success in the last year. Um she's lighting up the festivals. Um she co directed a film called uh Feats of Modest Valor, um with uh her co director and co producer Alex Alice McDowell and uh they are going to have that broadcast on TV during uh Science Week, so RTE Science Week, so check that out. Yeah, it's um, a really wonderful piece of work. It's um it's really moving, so I suggest you tune in and, and watch that. Yeah, her film Trollion is also doing really well, uh picking up awards all over the place. So uh, it was really nice to chat with her uh at this stage and uh, so yeah so we give you Mia Malarkey. So uh, I'd like to welcome Mia Malarkey to our uh, podcast. Um, thanks very much for coming. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's our pleasure. Thanks a million for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and uh, talk to us about your work. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this is... Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting... It's interesting to get people together to talk about their experiences and to switch off their phones, Paul mm, Webster. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, just to get a, um, you know, I suppose a nuts and bolts uh, uh, account of how they got started in, in Irish film and um, what inspires them and uh, how they how they deal with, I guess, the day to day struggles of uh, of uh, of their working craft. Uh, so uh, yeah, me, uh, thanks very much for coming. Oh, is that my cue? That's your cue. That's your cue. <laughs> very welcome. Uh, it's very nice to be here. And Paul Webby, I know you're going back. And Paul Non Webby, it's lovely to meet you for the first time properly. Too many Pauls. Too yeah. many Pauls. The Pauls show. Um, yeah, we're friends, but uh, I'm always kind of every time you show me a new film, I'm quite amazed uh, with the kind of there's a huge level of empathy that you seem to get into these films. Um, would your background in psychology kind of come into that? Do you think that has led you to where you are now? Yeah, that would be one one thing. Uh, well, I did psychology and philosophy after school, so I was always interested in people, so anything people-related. Um, yeah, anything people-related was always inspiring to me. Um, my dad was a psychotherapist, my mom was an art therapist, and I have a brother with autism. So we would have grown up talking about mental health our whole lives and we would have had family meetings about mental health. So that whole area of how people work and, and what upsets them and how they recover from things was always interesting to me. So that was probably why I studied philosophy and psychology and then afterwards found that too academic f for 
who I am, so wanted to do something much more artistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and what were your first forays into film, and what kind of inspired that? Uh, I used to do plays with my brothers and sisters, and I was the director, so there's five of us in the family, mm-hmm. and uh, I would just get them to do ridiculous stuff. I would write little musicals, and they would act them out, and we'd like a, a double staircase with a huge landing, so mom and dad and neighbours would come and watch and put out all the chairs and have little nibbles, and my brothers and sisters would sing songs and do dances that I'd come up with. So it kind of probably started there, and then... Uh, yeah, always I was always dabbling in the arts throughout school and college. I did performing arts, which was singing and dancing, and then I did Galway Youth Theatre, which was acting. And so the arts were always sort of there. And then I, uh, my parents bought me a camcorder when I was eleven, so I started making little movies with my brothers and sisters. And then I bought myself a camcorder maybe when I was like twenty, and started making movies with my pals in college. So it, it was always kind of there. Oh, fantastic! And uh, what kind of is there any, or are, are there were there any pieces of work that kind of inspired you? Can you remember kind of your earliest kind of introduction to kind of film, or when it had some sort of aesthetic or, or emotional yeah, connection yeah. with you? And if you're comfortable talking about that, be yeah, nice. yeah, absolutely. Well, we were only just talking about ET, ah, and okay. I saw that when I was three, and I bawled crying. Apparently, I was inconsolable for about an hour. I loved the film. I think we watched it many times. And I think what was happening in the film was it was paralleling my experience with my brother. So he was one year younger than me. He had autism. I couldn't communicate with him and he had to go to hospital a lot. And this alien comes to planet Earth. He's trying to communicate with this little boy, Elliot, and then he ends up being taken away. So I think I it was like the first time some piece of art reflected my own life back to me. And I, not that I had those thoughts at the age of three, but the feelings were there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was probably like a, a turning point. And then another one was another Spielberg was Jurassic Park when I was eight. Oh. And I somehow got separated from my family. So I was watching it on my own in the cinema. And I absolutely loved it. And I didn't have anyone there to tell me, like, to be, not, you know, don't be afraid or whatever. So it was like this cool, independent experience of like something that was really terrifying. But I loved the the dinosaurs and the puppets and I loved the the magic of it mm. so those were two I mean now I'm totally not really a Spielberg fan anymore kind of yeah the, you know I was about to say who is but you know uh, yeah who is anymore <laughs> I think I, I think God, Annie, God forgive me in the oh. 80s I think we've all been touched by his films we haven't really had that feeling in a while but um, so the Malarkey family is a very creative family Um so you talked about your brother, and I think the culmination of all the talents of your brother, one brother being an actor and writer and uh, another being your composer, uh, kind of culminated in the film Oh Brother. Maybe tell us about that. Yeah, so Oh Brother is inspired by our brother with autism. Um, so my, so I have two brothers and two sisters, and Eddie's the youngest, he's the actor slash writer. So he wrote a script based on Jody, the brother who has autism. And... I loved it. And so we said, well, let's just make it ourselves. So we, mostly my money, we pulled together what we had. And um, my sister, Anna, composed the score for the film. Um, so you're like the, you know, the Galway equivalent of Hanson, essentially. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I hopefully we're like the Coen brothers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but an interesting thing that happens in my family is that everyone has to make a piece of art about Jody as their f- kind of first big piece because he's so deeply ingrained in our system, in our psyche. You have to kind of release that. So my first film was a documentary about Jody and that 
won a couple of awards and then Eddie's first piece of writing was about Jodie and one of Anna's first ever songs that she composed years ago was about Jodie so he's kind of like a muse because he's he's just quite a profound person mm-hmm. um, so that's so, so our brother then was all three of us bringing that together and Jodie loves the film he laughed non-stop when he watched it so yeah and it was quite ambitious because it takes place in Ireland and Amsterdam and uh, you kind of self-funded that, right? Yeah, pretty much. No, we did a, a crowdfunding campaign towards the end of it um, just to cover post-production and festival submissions. But for the actual shooting of it, the, myself and Eddie covered most of that, mostly me, because he's a poor actor and I'm a slightly less poor director. So, yeah, so we, we bought, like, cheap Reiner flights, stayed in the Red Light District in Amsterdam for a couple of nights, rented a boat, didn't get any permission or licences because... There's no money to know what we're doing. Gorilla. Yeah, totally gorilla style. Yeah, well, well, that's the way to go about it. Just, you know, that's, but FNI in particular, that's very much encouraged that type of, you know, uh, get up and go kind of attitude. Just go and do it. Look, it's great if you can get funding, but, you know, how, and just about in, in relation to funding, what have your experiences been like? Get, you know, getting into that, you know, glass box and Noel's house party and, and collecting that few euros. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, it's really hard at the beginning because you can't make a film until you've made a film. And so you're sort of, it's like, yeah, it seems really hopeless to begin with. But then you just sort of try and make stuff anyway. Um, and then uh, I, I did this 10-day fast, right? So I didn't eat food for 10 days. And afterwards, I, I got a burst of energy. And I just started applying for grants. And I got, like, three grants. So I got the Irish Film Board grant, I got one with Galway Film Centre, the Science one, and I got one with the National Women Can- Women's Council of Ireland. Um, so I had this, like, frenzy for all, a year. For, all for the one piece of work or for different No, no, pieces? for separate projects. Okay, separate projects. So. Um, three documentaries, three separate documentaries. So it was kind of like, a, it was a bus. You hadn't actually gotten really funded before that or no, kind nothing, of a state party yeah yeah nothing on that level yeah. like I did loads of promo videos and it was like that kind of level but yeah. I hadn't been funded for like a film right so yeah so it was great and then I mean yeah hopefully once you're on the funding bandwagon you stay on it and you get a name and all that kind of stuff yeah it, yeah it's I remember a few years ago I got funded and then I got shortlisted for uh, film board thing around the same time I think we were both shortlisted at that time and I was like I was about 24 or 25 at the time I was like I've made it <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't get the film board one in the end and it was like you know another good few years before I got the funded thing so the, it is a bit of a hard L slog and you kind of you're never at this stage at, our, at the level we're at you're kind of keeping on going and mm. how do you kind of balance that and how do you kind of armour yourself to that kind of thing um, <laughs> I have a good boyfriend who puts up with all the crap um, I think I, I, I always remind myself of the bigger picture and where I'm trying to go um, so the small setbacks I just sort of uh, my brother was a rower for Ireland <clears throat> so he's a really top athlete and you know he would win and he would lose competitions but it was always like you have targets, you, you're kind of scientific, you eat accordingly, you sleep accordingly. So he had this really like rigorous approach. And I, I remember maybe like three years ago, a light bulb came on and I was like, oh yeah, step by step. And it was amazing. So it's was, like, that the, was that the science bit? Like, that was, did you literally have a scientific moment where you're like, 
you know. A eureka. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it just, because if you're going to do it for the rest of your life, you, you have to manage your own emotions with the, the ups and the downs. So I don't take wins too excitedly and I don't take rejections with too much pain because I'm sort of always trying to be a little bit scientific and be like, okay, step by step, bigger picture, what's the next target, da da da. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that was probably what keep me going. I had like, I think maybe two years ago, I, I really hit a low, which lasted for maybe two weeks, and I was like very depressed, and I really felt awful for about two weeks. Like I didn't meet anybody or go out, or and that was mo- you know mostly my poor boyfriend who had to pick me up, pick up the pieces, and and kind of nudge me along. So yeah. he's a pillar, you know. There's there's no I don't there's not many other industries that kind of test you like that that test your boundaries of you know how much rejection you can take and how how long you can go without getting a work and getting because we're all we all need these lifts you know mm. yeah absolutely <clears throat> i mean is do, do you have like a strategy to deal with something like that or would you practice mindfulness or is that does any of that come into the equation do you meditate or would you you know have any kind of level of advice for people who were because you know they, a lot of people are dealing with quietly with a lot of issues you know, which will segue nicely into Throwline, which is which yeah. is what we're going to talk about next. But uh, you know, how do you respond to that, uh, consciously or unconsciously? Or yeah, I think um, I saw an interview with um, Tarkovsky a few years ago, and he was kind of saying he says it in his book as well, Sculpting in Time. The most important thing is expression, is your own expression. So if I keep going back to my own voice or expression, then the external stuff doesn't hold as much weight anymore so I don't need as many external reinforcements of fundings or awards or even just like a nice email to say I loved your piece whatever it, it you know it's still totally important and I wouldn't get by without those things but if I try and keep returning back to myself and my own expression and what I'm making and that it has to come out there's more momentum in that than in the external reinforcements very good yeah and you're very good at you know you you keep going for the funding things, but you always have that thing that you're working on. So, for example, uh, Throwline, the documentary about um, the taxi watch. So tell us about it. you basically you kind of that was a passion project for you as well. So if you could just tell us about how you found out about the story and how you got into it. Yeah, basically, uh, I think I often get drawn to stories where somebody has been immensely kind or altruistic in some way. So. Throwline is a taxi driver who suffered depression for nearly a year, like extreme depression, contemplated suicide, came through it all and started being aware of other people who were suffering. And he set up Taxi Watch where they rescue people who are, you know, five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night, very drunk, standing alone on a bridge and very likely to jump. So they've rescued over 200 people in those kind of situations since they set up in 2014 amazing work and they've spread to several cities throughout the west of Ireland Um, so they're training all these taxi drivers in suicide awareness and they're sort of like the frontier of where people are totally forlorn and they're just at that point where they're going to jump so so I when I read about him in the paper I was like oh I love this guy how amazing you know he's like a guardian of the night and there's loads of amazing suicide NGOs and everything but you have to kind of go through a process (coughs) and it's sort of a 9 to 5 there's not necessarily nighttime stuff or weekend stuff and it's just the fact that they're on the ground dealing with those people at that moment at that like crucial point 
So I just called Derek and he's totally a cool dude and went down to Kilkenny and hung out with them and then yeah, put together a crew and that was a self-finance project. I kind of looked around for what were the up-and-coming funds and they were either too far away or they didn't quite fit what I was doing, so I just went ahead and did it. And the way I made it work was that whatever promo jobs I did, I just kept that money and put it into Throwline, which is kind of how I made our brother as well. That's great. Yeah, tell us a little bit, just going jumping back a bit, um, you've done kind of work for Gennaro and Zupa, and now you, you were able to get kind of nice little prize funds that you could put back in. Um, so yeah, those are great for up-and-coming directors. If you're, like, starting out directing yeah, um, or whatever, any sort of area of filmmaking, those contests are absolutely great because uh, if you've got a few pals and you can make something for nothing, then you have a reason to make it. You've got, like, a, a trajectory. And you can, like, I've, I've won thousands off those things. So. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really prevalent. There's a number of them. There's, like, Talent House and, uh, you know, not just in, in terms of directing specifically. I mean, if you're, you know, if you want to be a, a graphic artist or production designer, concept design, there's ways to get out there and be seen, yeah. you know, and it's very important to put yourself forward with these things. And if you don't win, it's not even about winning. It's about, you know, having, your, having a finished piece of work. Absolutely. And also, well, it's a chance to experiment. It's a chance to be like, oh, I, re- I really wanted to do something backwards. So I just filmed this thing in reverse and they loved it. Or like I did a video. My cat just had a load of kittens and we did a video where the kittens <laughs> were the characters in the story. Yeah. And it won and the, the company loved it. And it, like I ended up doing something for IBM, something for Microsoft, something for Nokia. And it's all like you just make these like now they're very little silly DIY videos looking back but at the time that's all they wanted and it was an excellent way to test ideas yeah I mean if it's good enough for Ben Wheatley you know to do small videos on YouTube or pre-YouTube and get himself out there it's good enough for anyone else yeah I know it's totally cool Um, and then just say coming back to Trollline say what was your kind of stylistic intention going in there you shot it all at night was that kind of challenging um, I think, well, the biggest challenge early on was that Derek, the guy who set up Taxi Watch, didn't want me to film a rescue or an intervention because he didn't want to uh, compromise Taxi Watch by making people feel that their anonymity was at risk. So we had that discussion several times because, you know, obviously as a storyteller, it would be a pinnacle scene. So I really wanted it, but I couldn't go against his wishes he wanted to protect the people that they were helping mm-hmm. so it was a way I, the challenge then was to come up with a way to keep it visually interesting and evocative and still give that sense of drama of those moments mm-hmm. and then bring you into the world of the drivers so yeah it's, like, it's it's shot incredibly well I mean it's obviously very difficult to shoot in low light at night mm-hmm. like that uh, and it's good old Jess Foley uh, plugging you there Jess <laughs> Jess Foley yeah it's uh, good GP yeah, just yeah, trying to give him a bit of a plug there. Which well, actually, cool. we had a cool guy, um, Ronan Cairns, who is a stunt driver, but he also makes like race cars. So he built a roof rack for us, like a roof mount with a hydraulic pump, so it counteracts all the bumps in the road. And then we attached the Ronin, which is like a, a gimbal motorized Steadicam. And then we had, I think, like the Sony F5, or one of those Sonys that's like beautiful in low light. Yeah. So I would drive around, and Jas would do the remote control from the passenger seat, and that's how we got a lot of those really nice nighttime shots. And it puts you into the perspective of the driver, of the taxi driver. And because it was a big yoke on top of the roof and everyone was drunk, people were reaching out and thought we were cabs. We have all these really good shots of people hailing us. And then we just cut to one of the drivers and it looks like they're hailing the drivers. 
Yeah. So that was kind of, yeah, some cool people helping out by coming up with some cool ways to film it. So that's how you achieved that particular look. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. Um, a question I'd have uh, about uh, Throwline. Uh, some of the some of the more interesting characters. I don't want to give too much away for people that haven't seen it yet because I'm sure it's, has it finished doing the rounds. Or? Uh, no, no, it's still doing the festival circus. Okay. It's still a good few to go. Yeah, just about characters and and that number one about the characters who were in, not just obviously your you know your 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 protagonist I guess um, but the other characters that were involved. It seems as if there was a lot of people that were directly had directly suffered. At the hands of you know, Mental you know this this, this, this terrible affliction. In some cases, um, you know, what was it like dealing with them? How comfortable were they coming forward to be you know subjects uh, you know of the duck? Yeah, and yeah. Well, like we were saying, we were chatting about it earlier, and the drivers most inclined to help or to join Taxi Watch are those who've directly experienced. Some someone in the family committing suicide or taking their lives or just having severe mental health problems. So if you know that stuff firsthand, you're very emotionally engaged with other people who are struggling. And you're you're a bit better equipped to lift them out of it to an extent. You know, you're not as afraid to be completely honest with them. Mm. And that's part of the suicide training as well, is just to be unafraid of, you know, being totally honest. How do you feel? Are you thinking of suicide? This kind of stuff. Um, in terms of talking to them and like I suppose yeah because my family has all that psychology background I automatically love talking about that stuff with people so I'm, I don't have any issues going straight into that stuff with people and then I think that uh, allows people to feel comfortable about being honest as well you know it's uh, it's a sort of a societal thing where it's taboo to talk about your mental health in loads of countries it's just we haven't fully gotten over that fear so it's very um, disarming or it's, it puts you at ease when someone's just really honest um, so they're all like they, yeah three of the main characters in the film have experienced like very painful stuff either their own or a very close family member and none of them held back they were all very honest and we, did, we didn't have a lot of time to film like it was done quite quickly but yet they just put everything out straight away. I mean, it's the same with the documentary and work I just finished about the mother and baby home in Tume. We <coughs> talked to a lot of survivors. They've really been through some serious hardship in their youth. You know, they were taken away from their mothers and raised in an institution that was pretty heartless. And um, I think if you're emotionally honest with people and if you're listening to them in a very compassionate way, you know, people want to be heard. People want their stories to be heard by others because it's sort of cathartic you know if the burden isn't yours alone anymore if someone has listened to you compassionately so I think that would be how I would approach interviews So with the you got uh, film board funding for that for the the short documentary scheme what was your because it's such a huge story um, what was your kind of pitch for that how how you were going to tackle that and how you were going to tell this kind of really harrowing story in tune yeah, I think um, uh, we were offering a perspective that hasn't been taken yet in Irish media, certainly, but in international media, which is the story of the children and the voices of the children. So there's been plenty of stuff done about the Magdalene Laundries and the women. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we had the whole story of the children has only come to light since 2014 when it broke internationally and there hasn't really been sort of artistic work made about it in terms of film specifically um, so I think when I said look I'm going to very much explore their perspectives their memories their trauma and how that trauma r- remains decades afterwards and that we sort of need a national catharsis for something that profound and that massive that happened for so long so I kind of pitched it like that I said we weren't going to do anything journalistic or kind of scandal based or investigative we were going to do something very emotional and sort of uh, experiential yeah so very much tonally I guess tapping into you know some of your other work as well and trying to get that emotional connection yeah and trying to have a visual language that um, pulls you into the mental state of those moments so, yeah, it would be like a kind of very artistic way of doing it. So we, we got some cool footage in the asylum in Ballinasloe. Probably shouldn't be saying this actually. <laughs> <laughs> we, I will take it We up. tried to get licenses for various buildings. It was really hard. So we just went ahead anyway and got some beautiful footage. So that, because the architecture is very much the same as the mother and baby home in Tume, the imagery, of, or you know, brings you into those places. And we did some voiceover stuff just like really reverby again just to kind of build the atmosphere of that time and what it was like for those children mm. so yeah it's kind of an artistic insight into so you'd encourage people to break into mental asylums and just oh my know, god get some break animals. into Balanislo it's <laughs> so beautiful it's huge and it's going it's I don't know it's such a shame that it's not being rescued or salvaged in some way yeah Camelot you know Camelot will come to the rescue and oh, I wish. 15 I starving actors in there uh, so were there kind of challenges with the say telling that story that you hadn't foreseen or how how did the actual filming go for you there was lots of challenges like <laughs> one thing that I think I would do slightly differently was better prepare the crew for how dark the interviews were going to be and I didn't myself and my producer sort of drove around met various people and, and selected the ones that would be best in the film and, you know, they're survivors, so they're telling you some really difficult things. And I think I would have... I think now, in hindsight, I would prepare the crew better. I would sort of get them into those meetings, maybe, or just, like, tell them, look, this is how the interview's going to unfold. I think it would just, yeah, not be too heavy for them afterwards that they have to try and process all of that and still get all their gear into place and get the best they can get out of it. So that would be one thing I'd do differently. I suppose... Yeah, we're trying to get a lot into a short time frame, so that's a massive challenge. So we should try and, you know, be as honest and and, um, compassionate to our characters as possible, but still get in a huge national trauma. So, yeah, I think it probably was a bit ambitious doing a short about such a big story. But I think we did it. We got it. Like, there's one but a happy... It's almost completely done. Yeah. So I think we, we pulled it off for the, for the most part. You've seen it. I've seen it. I, yeah. I, I was very deeply affected by it. I, I think everyone will be who sees it. Um, it kind of comes back to a joke uh, that we're, we always talk about with you, that all your films tackle these very heavy subjects. And yet, let your, yet you're a very <laughs> upbeat, kind of happy person. <laughs> um, which kind of brings us to another one of your projects that's doing very well, the uh, Feats of Mother's Valor. So maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah, that's um, about three people with Parkinson's disease and we sort of 
go into their realities and how they cope mm. and what the experience of it is like and the humanity, just plenty of warmth and humour. Um, and then parallel to that, there's a, a research team mostly based in Galway that are developing a cure for the disease. Mm. Um, but the cure is a long way off before it's ready for human trials, so it was a matter of showing the potential of the cure alongside the lives of these people and how it would completely change who they are. Yeah, that's what I'd say. <clears throat> Just from when I watched it, I was very deeply moved. Um, not personally, I, I, I didn't have anybody in my life who had uh, Parkinson's uh, thus far, and you know, you know, touch wood, hopefully not in the future. Or, but uh, what I'd like to ask you about it is um, uh, how important... Um, it, it seems like, like what Paul said in, in terms of you seem to be very jovial and, and upbeat and you know you were singing coming in here slightly uh -huh. uh, you, you know we need to how, how important is it for you as a filmmaker to highlight uh, socially important subject matters is it a conscious thing or does something just grab you in particular like this and you're like I have to do this it won't let me go I'm caught in a, you know, in a bear trap and until I you know, shake it this sort off. of grabs me, and I, I do want to make happy things. <laughs> Would you not just <laughs> do a musical? I know, or? and I probably should because that's what I started doing with my brothers and sisters. But for some reason, uh, I, I I always love when someone does something really, really kind. That's yeah. like far above and beyond the usual kindness of a person. So someone inventing a cure for Parkinson's, someone rescuing people from suicide, the historian who uncovered the fact that all these babies were buried in that home. They're all doing these immense heroic deeds. And I get, I, I get really moved by that. So if you're going to commit to something for a number of months or a year or something, you want yeah. to always be that emotional about it. Yeah, and on the surface, the films, they sound like so Parkinson's suicide. Uh, mother and baby, um, the hat trick. Yeah, 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 triple whammy. Um, but when you actually watch the films, especially say *Feats of Modest Valor*, you don't come away sad or kind of feeling depressed about it. Or especially *Trollline*, you come away with a lot of hope. So it's a real credit to uh, the way you tell the stories. Um, so yeah, how, like. We're, I think we're doing you a bit of a disservice there by saying, you know, you do all these heavy subjects. Is there is there an area that you want to explore now going forward? Um, I've written two short scripts, uh, but they're very underdeveloped. I need a lot of work. It's just kind of starting to write now. Um, uh, they have... One of them's really kind of upbeat and mad. It kind of taps into... I used to be a dancer in Galway for years in a nightclub called Outrageous. It was a lot of crack. It was in the black box. Oh, yeah. Do you know Outrageous? Did you ever go <laughs> I remember Outrageous. I was at some big gigs in the black box. So many, yeah. so many euphemisms there. Oh. Have <laughs> it was a really cool... I started when I was maybe 17, and it eventually got shut down when I was maybe 22 or 21, something like that anyway. Right. Okay. But it was like you'd get 100 quid and you'd dance for two hours on the stage and there'd be maybe... Two or three thousand people, and it was mental. Now, like hardcore dance music, probably loads of yokes and coke, all that kind of shenanigans. But yeah. it, it's left a mark in my mind. Like it's a scene that I was in for years. So I kind of want to. Uh, so one of the scripts has lots of that world and lots of the more artistic side of me. Isn't there? A, I think there's a feature doc now about underground club culture in Dublin. Might I now. think there is. Yeah, there's a few. Um, yeah, it's real fertile ground because. Now that dance music and that kind of culture has become the mainstream, um, but 
there's there's this whole history, this kind of subculture that's kind of ripe for explorations. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to uh, hearing that. Oh, it needs a lot of work. I okay. need to probably hook up with an actual writer who actually knows what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, and are you looking forward to, towards now? Because you've done you've done amazingly well with your shorts, and that are you looking now to kind of jump into features? I I don't feel ready yet, to be honest. I I want to really master the shorts. I want to feel like I've totally nailed it, and I'm very confident about my craft and my expression. Because I'm still making different styles, and I still don't, like not that that'll change, but um, there's still new styles I want to try out before I'm like. I don't know, the feature is such a statement, your first feature. Um, so I really want to yeah, well, refine I, my craft. Yeah, and that's, you know, that sounds very admirable and noble, but there's an element, you know, there's evidence to suggest that, you know, it's never finished, you know. What no, of course, and it's the voice always changes, the style always changes, your craft may improve or not. Some directors kind of get a bit crap as they get older, some get amazing as they get older. Yeah, so. yeah. But I'm... I want to do like a couple more short dramas because I definitely don't have enough experience with actors or with translating script into a scene. Yeah. I've, I've plenty of experience with documentary and I love both forms, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll definitely continue with both forms. But there's no way I'm ready for a feature drama because I, I really got to learn my craft. In and you area. see yourself going down that route, uh, drama in particular, or not yeah. other genre work? Or? I'm not. I, I, yeah, I'm not really a genre person. So you don't want to do like Dracula, four point six. Well, maybe if it was like a very like artistic version or something. I love drama. I love family drama. Mm. Like I love when everything just completely falls apart and people have to patch it all back up. So probably like yeah, stuff like that would be very interesting. Um, I like when there's elements of comedy or horror within. The drama, but it's not an out and out horror film or an out and out comedy. Yeah, well, there's comedy in everything. You know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Every yeah. funeral you go to, we usually should more have some comedy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Cool. Uh, thanks so much for coming in to chat with us. Uh, sure, we'll definitely be hearing more from you in the next few years. Uh, so yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys.